0: When I first turned to this this morning, I I slightly panicked because I saw the list of names on the page 40 and uh, was thankful that that chapter 37 landed on the right. I didn't fancy going through all those names. Um, So we're going to read the whole chapter of Genesis 37. So um, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah, and the sons of Zippah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornated robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheath rose and stood upright while your sheaths gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams." When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornated robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover his blood? Come let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornated robe back to their father and said, we find this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and says, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard.
1: I thought I'd begin this morning, new series, new term, and all that, by asking a pretty fundamental kind of a question: What are we doing here? What's the point of this? This community, uh, this gathering. Uh, you might not know the answer to that question, uh, and there there are reasons for that. It might be that you're quite new among us and you're not really sure. Uh, you know we're a Presbyterian church, but we're not really. Sh- You're not really sure who we are or what's important to us. That's okay. It might be that you've been here with us a long, long time, but somehow you just don't feel you've picked up the the key thing yet, what's really at the heart of it all. Or maybe you did once know, but somehow over time, you've sort of lost a a grasp of, of what's at the heart of it all. Let me tell you what we're all about here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. We're about helping human beings fulfill their destiny. To become the people they were made to be. People who are growing more and more like Jesus Christ. That's about it. That's what we're all about. Gathering together here that we might be remade to be more like Jesus. If that sounds too simple, I I don't mean it to be, because I understand that many of us who who would accept what I've just said have discovered that, that when we actually try to do that, when we try to live a life that's bringing us closer to Jesus, that's growing us in him, it almost raises more questions than it answers. Those of us who are trying to grow in Jesus, we, we have personal questions, person, questions about who we are. We say, well, with my background, when you come from a family as screwed up as mine, how can you really grow to be anything like Jesus? It's not really our DNA. Or maybe it's your own personal character. You've been longing to see God transform you. You've been longing to see him work in your life for, for not, not only years, but decades. And, and and you've no sense that it's working. I'm too, I'm just like too crooked and lost for this. Christ-like? Me? Or maybe you're just saying I'm too young. Goodness, I have my whole life in front of me. All this stuff about godliness and holiness and becoming like Jesus, you know, that's a bit like golf. You know, it's good for retirement, but there's a lot of life to be lived before it's. Sorry, any golfers. Um, you, you know, it, it, it can wait. My family's too screwed up. I am. I'm too young. We have our personal reasons for, for just hearing about discipleship, but not really engaging. I think we have questions too, though, about God. Some of us who, who have wanted to walk with Jesus, we've, we've still questions about God's role in all of this. Is he going to do this work in my life? Is he going to change me? Questions like, does he really care? There, there are eight billion or whatever people in this world, little old me in the middle of that. Surely it's it's naive, it's vain to think that God's attention somehow falls on me. Is God still able? There's another question. In Sunday school, God was amazing. He could do anything. He, he parted seas when he needed to. Jesus, when he came among us, healed everyone. He fed everyone. Miracles. God was able to do anything in the Bible. And then I look at my life and the culture I live in and I'm not quite so clear about his acting in power. Is he able? And is he, is he going to keep his promises? Is God going to come good? He says that one day he's going to take this whole sorry mess that we find ourselves in and he's going to make it all good. That's what he says. And then we'll live through a year like we're living through in our culture now. Or the last few years. And and this is the thing that's being made good. Doesn't doesn't look that way. So folks, I I want to say that what we're committed to and interested in here in, in one way is very simple. We want to become more like Jesus. But although that's quite simple, we've realized it's it's very complex to see how that all works out. We have a lot of questions one of the best places or the best place to have our questions uh, around following Jesus in real life answered is, is in the Bible. That's where we learn to keep in step with God's Spirit and where we're formed in the likeness of Jesus. Sometimes when we talk about reading the Bible so that we can become more like Jesus, um, I think we're naturally drawn to the, the New Testament. You know, so if you want to become more like Jesus, read the Gospels. Uh, they give an account of his life. Or somebody might say, well, read Paul's letters. Paul was brilliant at understanding what uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection mean, and he explains that to us in a way that helps us to live. So, yeah, read the Gospels and read Paul's letters. Not sure about the rest of the Bible. Actually, both Jesus and Paul saw it very differently. So whenever Jesus was looking for a textbook for his discipleship training, he just reached for his Bible, the Old Testament, quoted from it. As it is written, as it is written, what do the scriptures say? So whenever Jesus was pointing people into a discipling life, he used the Old Testament. Paul's very clear about the importance of the Old Testament too. So 1 Corinthians 10 He's telling this uh, At this point, he's telling a story of the history of Israel, and he says this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Romans 15, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So this story of Joseph isn't Sunday school fodder. It's not a children's story. It's written to teach us. This is part of the text that the Spirit's given us to grow as disciples of Jesus. To invite you into this glorious part of God's word, I want to share an invitation that I first heard around about 30 years ago. So my then minister, David Searle, Hamilton Road in Bangor. I want you to imagine for a moment That we could somehow step out of time, traveling in a time machine into some other dimension that allowed us to look down on the whole of human history. I wonder what we'd see. I believe that we'd see that the very focal point of human history is the cross of Jesus Christ. We'd see how history moved inexorably towards the cross, and we'd see how human history moves forward from the cross. Something that would surprise us, I think, and amaze us, is that the shadow of the cross falls both forwards and backwards. Of course, those of us who are in Christ can understand the shadow of the cross falling forwards. We realize that the whole of our existence is lived out in the light under the protection of the saving work of that Good Friday. It would be the backwards Shadow of Calvary, I think that would amaze us. Would see Adam and Eve clothed in animal skins, knowing that blood had been shed in order to cover their shame and the guilt of their sin. There would see a shadow of the cross. Would see Abram and Isaac ascending Mount Moriah. Would hear the boy questioning his father, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? Would hear Abram's reply, God himself will provide my son. And there we'd see another shadow of the cross. But perhaps nowhere more clearly in the whole of the Old Testament, nowhere would we see the shadow of the cross more clearly than in the life of Joseph. Joseph stands as a type of Christ so clearly and so vividly that you'd almost suspect that the writer knew all about Jesus. Jesus and that he had deliberately paralleled the Joseph story on the story of Jesus. Isn't that brilliant? When we read this story, we're going to be reading about Joseph. That, that's what it is. It's a, a story of this man and his family, God's dealings with them. But at every turn and oftentimes, we're going to see Jesus right here in this story. So let's, let's have a quick look this morning. Chapter 37, this very familiar chapter. We're going to look at it under three headings, looking out for three things. A family sin, a favourite suffering, and a father's sorrow. A family's sin. When you meet Jacob's family, uh, verse, chapter 37, they're as dysfunctional a crowd as you're likely to find. By the way, I hope you're relieved when you meet families like this in the Bible. I hope, I hope that looks like good news to you. It does to me. It's like I've said to you before, I used to think my family was weird until I met you guys and heard about yours. But the Bible's like that too, you know? The Bible, there, there's, no, there's no perfect families here. Look at this family. Three times we're told that Joseph's brothers hated him you in a family where you're not getting on with your brothers and sisters? Verse four, verse five, verse eight. And the reasons that contribute to the hatred, I can see two or three things there. He seems to be telling tales in his brothers. His dad's made him some sort of a favorite. And then these dreams that he has and, and how he talks about them. Everybody in this story is sinning. Jacob. It's kind of ironic, right? Jacob grew up in a home where he experienced favoritism. Do you remember that? His dad loved his brother Esau, and his mum loved Jacob. So he grew up in a home where he knew what it was to be not fully accepted by his father, to experience favoritism, and what happens? in his family. Folks, the tragic truth is that oftentimes in a family, the sins of one generation, they just crop up again, don't they? Oftentimes. So Jacob's sinning. Joseph is sinning. When you read the commentaries, there's a bit of a debate about Joseph, and you, you probably even have a bit of that in the text. It feels like he's good, and you feel sympathy for him, but then it, it feels like he's, he's bad, you know. So, you know, his, he's purer than his brothers. That's evident uh, in his behavior. But, but maybe he's a spoiled brat too. Um, this favoritism's gone to his head. Maybe he's immature, insensitive to his older brothers. I'm inclined, if I'm honest, just to see the good and the bad, both in Joseph. Um, I think he is more upright than his brothers seems to be. But he certainly hasn't learned how to make his his goodness winsome uh, for for his brothers close to him. Jacob sinning, Joseph sinning, and the brothers sin. Um, we get a pretty good picture already in chapter 37. The bad news is that chapter 37 is really only the tip of the iceberg for these guys. Uh, um, there are some chapters 35 right through to 38 which give a a more comprehensive picture of this family's moral health. It's a bit like the case notes that a GP would have. You just read after incident after incident, and together they build up a picture of the, the moral health of this family. So chapter 35, you have Reuben, the older brother, and you learn that he slept with his stepmother. Chapter 34, you can read how Simeon, Uh, And Levi, the next two older brothers, committed a terrible atrocity, killed the inhabitants of an entire village. And chapter 38, the chapter which comes next, and we're not going to dwell on in this series, you can read how the next son, Judah, doesn't do the right thing, uh, what's uh, required of him as a member of his family, but ends up uh, in dealings with a prostitute. We're talking here about a family sin. And we're beginning to get a picture of how, if God's going to work in the world, if he's going to turn people like you and me into disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, we, we didn't we say at the start that we have some personal questions about, about how it is that we follow Jesus? What about my family background? What about my own uh unformed and twisted character, can these find their place in God's story? Well, already in this Joseph's story, right at the outset, we see that somehow God seems to choose not even just an average, not a good family or even just an average one. I don't know, did he go out of his way to choose the worst, the most crooked family that he could find? It's nothing short of astounding. It might almost seem a bit weird. It's astounding and maybe at first hard to understand, but if you read on in this Bible story, you'll see that pattern recur over and over again. God choosing the worst of people to do his work among them. In fact, the writers of the New Testament say that he only ever begins with rotten material. Because that's all there is, the likes of me, and you. That's the only material there is. What else is there than rotten, broken sinners? So, a family sin. Notice a second thing, a favourite suffering. We've talked here about Jacob's evil sons. There's one who stands out here as different with Joseph. We've already said, um, with all the ambiguities still there in the text, Joseph is different. He stands out, spoiled, immature, possibly. But he's not involved in all the gross evil of his brothers. And, and probably a good part of their, their dislike for him is because he's different, because he stands out. Actually, there's an interesting thing that's going to happen in this story. As we read on in the biblical narrative, we're going to find that Joseph's faults are hardly mentioned at all. The, the narrator, I think, is making a choice there. I doubt very much that Joseph's conduct right throughout is perfect. I don't think that's the case. But I think the writer is deliberately trying to hold Joseph up before us. We've said earlier that we think he's a type of Christ. I'll just point that out, and then we'll run with it to see where it takes us. There's a lovely wee aspect of Joseph's character in verses 12 to 17, just very quickly, um, is brother, or his dad sent him to go and find the other brothers, he's gone on a journey, probably on foot, for 50 miles. Now, if, if you go and make that journey and you don't find your brothers, the, I, I'm the guy who, when I'm sent to the kitchen to find something in the cupboard, looks into the cupboard and goes, it's not there. Right? So if I've done the 50-mile journey on foot for three days and my brothers aren't there, I know what I'm doing. I'm going home and saying, job done. Done what I needed to do. Not Joseph. He's walked the 50 miles. He's told that they're, they're over there. Another, another day's walk, another 15 miles. And he sets off to find them. Just something very simple there. The, the idea of faithfulness, perseverance, stickability. Folks, I, I don't know. I read the commentators about this. If the commentators are right, we live in an age that struggles with any form of commitment and faithfulness. That's a general observation. And we live in a culture where younger people are being given a label, they're being called snowflakes. So low is their resilience that if anything happens that they don't like or aren't able for, they melt. We've been talking here about the fruit of the Spirit to become the kind of people in whom God's Spirit is evident. I think we see that here with Joseph. This faithfulness, this dogged determination to do what's been asked of him. I suppose I'm left wondering, do I demonstrate that? What about you? Is that fruit of the Spirit starting to be evident. When you, when you read on in the story, you can't help but think, oh goodness, it would have been much better for Joseph if he had never found his brothers that day. But he did. Verse 18, as they saw him approaching, they were plotting how they could kill him. We've already talked about the, the way they hated him. Yes, there's the father's favoritism, but... Uh, there's his dreams, that sense of being different, that moral purity that he had in contrast to their evil. Folks, there's, some, there's another thing here. If, if, like Joseph, we hold to the conviction that, that God has placed his hand on us, that he's called us to something different, then it's, it's possible and likely that we'll suffer too. If we really pursue purity in all of our dealings, integrity in a workplace where people maybe choose to operate by different standards, we will suffer. It's inevitable. If we choose to identify 100% with Jesus Christ, some people are going to love us for that, but others won't. I think we're beginning to see that more and more clearly in Belfast in 2018. That to follow Jesus Christ will not make us the favorites of all. Folks, let's spare a thought for Joseph as he falls into the hands of his brothers here. Uh, Later on in Genesis, not so much here, but it's expanded on a wee bit later in Genesis. We read that he, he wept, he cried, 17 years old. He's he's a boy still. He cried when his big brothers grabbed him and threw him in a pit, and no wonder. Kidnapped by your own brothers, can you imagine it? We're told then later in the Psalms that when the Ishmaelite traders who bought him when they took him they they put uh, shackles on his wrists and his ankles and hurt them. He was sold for twenty pieces of silver. Imagine being trafficked by your own family, some sort of sweatshop in a far-off land, a place where you don't know the language, where all you do is obey instructions 16, 17, 18 hours a day. Joseph's dreams have turned to a nightmare. His technicolour dream coat is in tatters. Spare a thought for him, shackled hand and foot, being dragged across this burning desert on the way to Egypt. If you made that journey today through the, on a Holy Land tour, you'd be in an air-conditioned coach, you'd have the, the chilled drinks in the, the fridge in the cabinet, and you'd still be exhausted by the end of it. Spare a thought for Joseph, being dragged along, behind a camel on foot, trying to keep up with its swift stride. Why, God? Why, God, why? Why is this happening to me? Why would you let it happen to me? His only real fault that we can see recorded is that he he has integrity and honesty. Why is a good person suffering? Surely God could have looked after him. God could have prevented all of this from happening. Folks, that's a, an incredibly natural way to think about this. But it's not right. When we read on in the Bible, I'm thinking particularly of 1 Peter, Peter's first letter. If you read Peter's first letter this afternoon and marked everywhere the mentions of suffering in that short letter. We'd learn there that suffering's part and parcel of the Christian life. Peter explains clearly in this short letter that Christ suffered and that he's become an example for us and that we who walk in his shoes, who follow in his footsteps, will suffer along with him. We're keeping step with the Spirit. We're becoming like Jesus. We've thought about a family sin and a favorite suffering. Very quickly, a father's sorrow. The chapter closes with the brothers, the sons, returning to Jacob and they lie. Do you see that? Just how easy the lies are. A lie about something as substantial as the the life and death of your son. No problem to these guys because that's the life they've been living. They produce their phony evidence, the, their robe, the beautiful robe, dripped in blood, and they bring it to, jo- to Jacob. He looks at it, he comes to the inevitable conclusion, my son has been torn to death by animals in he's dead. He's inconsolable. Folks, In the the sorrow of Jacob, this father, we get a, a shadowy, a faint and a shadowy picture of the grief of God. God the Father, whose dearly beloved son was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was bruised and he was beaten. His blood was shed because we hated him. We had gone our own way, and his goodness and his moral purity were an affront to us. All the elements of the gospel, here already in Genesis 37. A father's sorrow. it's where we finish today. As we read on in the Joseph story, we're going to see the most remarkable turnaround. And we're going to see what a wonderful turnaround God can make of these terrible circumstances. Folks, one of the great glories of the gospel is the turnaround that God worked in the death of his son, Jesus. He takes these terrible circumstances where we kill his son, and he makes them those very circumstances the basis of our salvation we kill his son but the father offers his crucified son to us as the way of our pardon and our forgiveness the father who loves his son more than any fathers ever loved, more than anyone will ever love anyone We killed his son. And he says, Here, let this be the basis of your forgiveness. Folks, can you understand? Can we understand now the father's wrath and his anger against those who reject his son? The writer to the Hebrews later would put it like this How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation?